Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. And I'm your host, Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisoluhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour... Thousands of civilians in the Central African Republic face imminent danger of being attacked and fighting leaves Malakal town deserted in South Sudan. In economics, Nigeria's next central bank chief is steady hand is a steady hand will keep out of politics. And in sports news, Kenya wins bid to host the 2018 African Nations Championships. But first up the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. The United Nations Security Council has been urged to refer the Syrian crisis to the International Criminal Court. The call was made by the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Nabi Pillay, in a briefing to the General Assembly. She says despite peace talks to resolve the crisis, the violence in, the violence in Syria continues. As all parties fail to grasp, there could be no military solution to the conflict. The perpetrators of these appalling crimes act in defiance of law and the international community without fear of accountability. Referral to justice is imperative for future hopes of peace. Today I repeat again my call to the Security Council to refer the Syrian crisis to the International Criminal Court. Meanwhile, around 400 Takfiri militants from Tunisia have returned to their homeland from the war against the Syrian government. The return of the Al-Qaeda-linked militants have sparked fears of violence in the country. Syria has been gripped by deadly unrest since 2011. Over 130,000 people have reportedly been killed and millions displaced due to the unrest. The African Union says talks between the Sudanese government and SPLMN rebels will resume this week. The AU has also expressed hopes that the talks which will be held in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa would pave the way for a broader dialogue between the two sides. Sudanese chief negotiator Ibrahim Gando, who is a presidential assistant, says the talks will resume tomorrow. The first round of talks came to an end without any face-to-face meeting between the two sides in Addis Ababa last Tuesday. Egypt's newly installed Prime Minister Ibrahim Malab has vowed to fight terrorism and revive the country's tourism industry, shattered by the turmoil in the country. Malab, a former state sector construction boss at the time of former leader Hosni Mubarak, says he had been asked by interim President Adli Mansour to form a new government in three to four days. The appointment came after Hazim Al-Bablawi surprise resignation on Monday. Al-Bablawi was installed by the military-backed government last July. 
And finally, the Nelson Mandela Foundation says plans are underway to make available and distribute more copies of the Mandela Fidel Castro legacy documentary. It was produced by world-acclaimed Cuban filmmaker Estela Bravo. The foundation CEO, Selo Hatang, says the film captures relevant and significant meetings between Madiba and Castro. The one-hour-long film was previewed in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, last night. It includes exclusive interviews with Bravo recorded with the two icons of South African democracy and Cuban revolution. Atang says the documentary contains interesting and valuable background on both countries. It says it can also be used as an educational tool. We will be working with the Cuban embassy to ensure that we distribute it as far and wide as possible because they will then be able to enjoy and understand why our struggle was not ours alone. That solidarity was an important part of our struggle. And the Nelson Mandela Foundation is particularly pleased that we've been able to work with the the minister and the Cuban embassy. And that's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, and It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Thousands of civilians in the Central African Republic are facing, an imminent, are facing imminent danger of being attacked, according to the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR. Attacks and counterattacks by former Muslim rebels known as ex-Seleka and Christian militia known as anti-Balaka continue to dispute the efforts of the country's new government to stabilize the situation. UNHCR says the targeting of civilians based on their religions has been happening since September last year. Derek Mbata has more. The crisis in the Central African Republic started at the end of 2012 when rebels attacked government forces. But it has now turned into a conflict between Christian and Muslim communities. UNHCR spokesperson Adrian Edwards says although in some areas, including neighborhoods in the capital Bangui, people continue to live and work together, atrocities have become frequent. More than 15,000 people in 18 locations in the northwest and southwest of the country are at present surrounded and under threat from armed groups. These populations are at very high risk of attack and urgently need better security. Although violence has hit all communities in CAR, most of the people who are trapped are Muslims under threat from anti-Balaka militiamen. Areas we're particularly worried about include the PK-12 neighborhood in Bangui and the towns of Bodo, Bua and Bosangoa. The conflict in the Central African Republic has displaced close to one million people. According to the UN Refugee Agency, more than 700,000 people have been displaced within the country and close to 290,000 have fled to Cameroon, Chad, the Democratic Republic of the Congo and the Republic of the Congo. The World Food Programme, WFP, is providing food assistance to the people in need. 
Elizabeth Piers is WFP spokesperson in Geneva. We are continuing to provide assistance to Bosongoa, Boar, Pawa and several villages around. In February in Boar we fed 13,000 people and at the airport we currently provide ration to 62,000 people and uh, we are indeed scaling up our operation. Now that the food arrives inside Central African Republic, our concern is regarding the funding for the regional crisis and for refugees. The United Nations is doing all it can to help promote reconciliation between the communities in the country, says Corinne Momal-Venien, director of the UN Information Service in Geneva. What we have is an office, Binuka, which has a mandate of helping the government stabilize the country, develop the institutions, and also foster political dialogue between the various communities. And it has a human rights component as well. And of course, the Security Council has asked the Secretary General to send a commission of inquiry on what has happened. And the commission of inquiry's work should serve also to foster reconciliation by putting in a transparent manner what has happened. In his message to the people of the Central African Republic, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has called for an end to the bloodshed. He wants those who are committing atrocities that the world is watching and they will be held accountable. The Secretary General said the United Nations is committed to help the country recover from the crisis. Derek Imbata, United Nations. The town of Malakal in the Unity State in South Sudan remains deserted with signs of looting and more than 100 dead bodies scattered around following fighting last week. That was what was witnessed by staff from the UN mission in South Sudan, UNMIS, which conducted a number of patrols in the town over the weekend. UNMIS continues to provide protection to about 22,000 people displaced by the fighting between government forces and those supporting former Vice President Rick Macha. Last week's fighting forced Oxfam, a UN partner agency at UNMIS base in Malakal, to evacuate its staff and scale back its work there. Oxfam's Grace Carhill spoke to Luak Nelson about the impact of the fighting on the agency's work in Malakal. Since the fighting began last Tuesday in and around the town of Malakal, our operations within the UNMIS base became severely restricted. The working environment was very difficult. There was regular shelling and gunfire. Our staff were in and out of the bunkers in this compound, and it became extremely challenging to continue our work with inside the base. So we've withdrawn our staff for a couple of days so that they can have a rest, and we will be getting back to work there hopefully as soon as Wednesday this week. You basically said you are ready to get back to work in Malakal. Don't you think now people will be missing your assistance? Yeah, it's a very difficult situation. Now, obviously, around 20,000 people in need within the unmissed space in Malakal. Um, we always have to draw a balance between being there and providing assistance and being effective. The conditions last week for our staff were poor and they were terrible for the IDPs as well. So we just need to give our staff a small break and then we will get back to work with full force. What we want to try and do is provide 
aid and provide assistance to as many IDPs in the most effective way possible. And having extremely tired staff isn't the most effective way. So we will get back to work there on Wednesday and we will continue our work doing public health promotion, which is things like promoting um, safe water chains, teaching people to wash their hands before preparing food, teaching children not to defecate in the open, all the already vital tasks. What are you getting from ground? What is the situation like in Malakal, the humanitarian situation? Sure, so our staff are working from in this space. So our staff had direct experience of IDPs influxing from in and around the town, very horrific stories were being told to them about women and girls who were threatened with abduction by armed groups and then when they didn't comply and tried to run away they were then shot at. IDPs who are clearly in a very traumatized state sitting around with their heads in their hands, wounded people coming into the camp, um, men being carried by women because of their because of the gunshot injuries they sustained. It's a very difficult situation at the moment. So as Oxfam, we're identifying a need for more clean drinking water. Earlier on in the week, just before the weekend, there was a severe shortage of clean drinking water. Aid agencies together managed to rehabilitate one of the treatment systems. So water was up and running again as of the weekend but there's still need for more water. There's lots of queues of jerry cans being lined up and people waiting a long time to get fresh drinking water. What can you tell me about the effort of your other humanitarian partners on ground? Together, when you put your efforts, are you able to help or deliver sufficient service to the IDPs? Yeah, I think so, and I think coordination has been working quite well inside the Unna space in Malakal. Um, so for a day or so last week, there was no movement in and out of the Unna space. But in the meantime, the aid agencies, they really pulled together, managed to dig emergency latrines, managed to rehabilitate a broken water treatment plant. So I think there is a real sense of working together and trying to get the most done under very challenging circumstances. That was Oxfam's Grace Carhill talking to Luak Nelson. It's 8.14 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. If you have any questions or comments about our show, you're welcome to send, get a hold of us. Send us an email to info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or you can get a hold of us at our Twitter handle which is at Channel Africa 1. Now, going back in time, today in history in 1980, Egypt, under the leadership of Anwar al-Sadat, re-established diplomatic relations with Israel, and the move is resented by other Arab nations. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
gunman from Islamist group Boko Haram shot and burned to death 59 pupils in a boarding school in northeast Nigeria on Tuesday. Police Commissioner Sanusi Rufai says some of the students' bodies were burned to ashes in the attack on the Federal Government College of Buni Yadi, a secondary school in Yobe State near the state's capital city of Damaturu. President Goodluck Jonathan has called the attack callous and senseless murder by deranged terrorists and fanatics who have clearly lost all human morality and descended to bestiality. Matlang reports. Witnesses say the attackers first set ablaze the college administrative block, then moved to the hostels where they locked students in and started firebombing the buildings. Tuesday's attack brings the toll from attacks blamed on Boko Haram to more than 300 civilians killed this month alone. It's the first reported in Yobe State and the first school attack reported this year by suspected fighters of the terrorist network of Boko Haram, the nickname that means Western education is forbidden. President Goodluck Jonathan told a news conference on Monday that the Boko Haram attacks were quite worrisome, but that he was sure they will get over it. Thousands of Nigerians have lost family members, houses, businesses, their belongings and livelihoods in the four-year-old rebellion. Analysts believe the military is losing its war to halt the Islamic uprising in the northeast of Africa's biggest oil producer. More from Dr. David Zunmino from the Institute for Security Studies in South Africa. Given the nature of the threat, the military capacity alone cannot come to terms with it. And with this military capacity, you see the experience in the Nigerian Delta. The Nigerian military has not been able to defeat the men and, are not, and is not able to defend the Boko Haram today because uh, Boko Haram actions not respond to the conventional warfare that the country's army is prepared to, which call for change in, in approach. The intelligence gathering, which is key and important here, is not functioning because the different structures of the state security in the state security system are not collaborating the way it's supposed to be. You said in here recently uh, some reshuffling that uh, took place because President Jonathan has come to realize that the key security agencies are not collaborating are not working together, concealing information from each other and I don't know how you can defend the national security of the country if you do not share the information that is seen as vital for the survival of the state. The military has said recent attacks are being perpetrated by militants who have escaped a sustained aerial bombardment and ground assault on forest hideouts along the border with Cameroon. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Tlantla Masango in Johannesburg. The voters' roll has officially been closed in South Africa and the Independent Electoral Commission, IEC, will chart the road to the May the 7th elections with political parties today. The IEC is meeting with about 140 political parties who plan to contest both the national and provincial poll. The meeting will set key deadlines in the run-up towards the elections. Schabankosi reports. As many as 189 parties have registered to contest this year's general elections in May, but only 139 will contest seats in both the national and provincial legislatures. The rest will contest within various provinces. But just how long the ballot paper will be will be determined by who pays the hefty deposit required by the IEC. To compete for the National Assembly seats, a party has to pay a 200,000 rents deposit. For each of the provincial legislatures a party wants to contest, the deposit is 45,000 rands. 
This means if a party wants to contest in all the nine provinces and the National Assembly, it must pay 605,000 rand. The money is refundable to those who win seats. The IEC's chief electoral officer is Musutu Muyepa. The election deposit is it's very clearly prescribed in law, and it is a matter that the, the commission does not take very lightly when it deals with. We have consulted extensively. The registration of political parties continues. It is not affected by proclamation, but it will be closed for a party that intends contesting these elections if that party is not registered by the day on which the submission of the list of candidates is due. Although tensions have risen in some parts of the country, the IEC says it has so far not received major complaints from any of the parties contesting. The commission says it has structures in all local areas to deal with problems as and when they arise. Muyapia says in instances where the structures can't resolve the problems, other avenues are available. The issues that are not dealt with at that level or are dealt with in a manner that one of the parties that, that feels aggrieved by what has happened can, can review, uh, in fact, or take that, those matters um, further. There, there are issues. Um, once we, we, we have an election date proclaimed and parties uh, have submitted their list of candidates, there will be issues that will, will bother on the uh, violation of the code of conduct. And those are matters that can be dealt with by any aggrieved party through the electoral court. Registration to vote in the elections closed yesterday as the date for the election was published in the government gazette. However, not everyone was enthusiastic to take advantage of the final hours to register. Malamulele residents in Limpompo remain adamant that they will not register because a meeting held last week with the ANC regional and provincial structures failed to convince them to change their stance. The residents are demanding a separate municipality. The Malulele task team spokesperson, Jan Kuna. The people of Malamulele have taken the decision that they were not going to register to vote. Now, it was also made clear that this decline to register might even affect the voting. Despite the challenges in volatile townships like Malamulele and Piekestal on the Gauteng's West Rand, the IEC has seen a record number of registered voters. 25 million. It specifically targeted young people, but some could not be convinced. Tsebisile Lamini voted once, but she is not doing it again, saying it is a waste of time. I don't want to put my governance in any of the hands of the uh, political leaders right now. I believe all of them can speak a load of stuff and promises, but they don't necessarily deliver. I don't think there is one currently, and even if the chances are there, I'd rather just stick with my vote uh, rather than face the disappointment really. There was a certain point when I actually did vote but it's just been disappointing and when the other parties other than ANC don't win and they get like chairs in parliament or whatever I don't really see their effect. The IEC meeting today with parties will include the new kids on the political block, Ahang South Africa and the economic freedom fighters. The final election timetable with key deadlines for submissions of candidate list, application for special votes, and notifications for votes outside the country will be released after the meeting. I am Sichabagankosi in Pretoria. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Human Rights Watch says the anti-homosexuality bill that has come into effect in Uganda is yet another troubling sign of disregard for fundamental human rights in that country. Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni signed the controversial law which has now toughened the penalty for same-sex conduct. For more on this, Kopedi Namani spoke to Human Rights Watch spokesperson Maria Burnett. Well, beyond the criminalization of same-sex sexual conduct, which uh, was already on the books in Uganda before this bill was passed, this law is really much more insidious. It includes provisions such as the criminalization of attempted homosexuality, uh, aiding and abetting homosexuality, touching with the intent to commit homosexuality, which are all incredibly vague and very difficult to prove as well as a provision which criminalizes promotion of homosexuality. And our concern there is that the state has criminalized, for example, you know, non-governmental organizations that work on sexual rights, uh, health uh, rights work that involves uh, outreach to most at-risk populations. Um, it also includes a provision which makes it criminal to rent a room where sexual conduct, homosexual conduct might take place. This means that people, you know, are going to be potentially thrown out of their homes. It's a very sweeping law that criminalizes a broad set of activities and fundamentally is a serious threat to freedom of expression, the debate about homosexual rights in Uganda and how to approach the fight against HIV, for example, in Uganda, now is criminal. We can talk about one side of it and divert views are now criminal. Should we be worried about the silence of uh, most African governments regarding this development in Uganda? I think we should be concerned about the silence of any country that doesn't stand up for freedom of expression. People can have divergent views, but the debates must continue. There must be space for people to express their views. And just as you know, we all tolerate the views we may not agree with, we have to expect that the, the debate can be protected. So by criminalizing the discussion surrounding homosexuality, it really is a terrible, terrible step for Uganda. And uh, we've actually seen some, uh, you know, concern voiced by African leaders. There was an Ethiopian minister who said that she did not support the bill and was concerned about the bill. So, you know, we hope we'll see more and more African voices coming to the fore. I'm not sure if you're aware of uh, the uh, anti-homosexuality protest that took place yesterday in Kenya. Now, there seems to be a growing chorus of sheer intolerance where homosexuality is concerned on the African continent. What does this say about us as a people? I don't know. I mean, my concern is that it's easy to stir up hatred against vulnerable groups or minority groups. This is a classic tactic that politicians have used for centuries. You know, this idea that you use either science or hatred directed at minority groups to stir popular political support goes back thousands of years. It's, it's, you know, how we got slavery and segregation in the United States and other horrific policies directed at other minority groups going back to World War II as well. So this is nothing new. I think what we have to be concerned about is is where does this go and where are we going to see the strong voices which call for tolerance and the protection of freedom of expression in Uganda. And what gains have human rights and civil society organizations had in campaigning against states that continue to call for the criminalization of homosexuality? As I said, this is bigger than the criminalization of homosexuality. Obviously, many countries in Africa have, you know, colonial era 
laws which criminalize same-sex activity. And, you know, over the long run, we certainly hope to see those pulled. Um, but ultimately, what we're concerned about here is that the, some of these new laws are actually making things much more difficult to even discuss the divergent views. So we certainly will urge countries where there's a threat to freedom of expression to make sure that they, they pull those laws, that freedom of expression and freedom of association can be protected so that discussions about these issues, so that non-governmental organizations doing critical public health and human rights work have the space to do their job. That was Maria Bernard, spokesperson for Human Rights Watch, on the line from New York, talking to Kupe Dinamani. It's 8.28 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet, and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The government of Ethiopia has banned employment agencies from exporting any domestic worker to Arab countries until the current law on labor export is fully amended. Over 150,000 Ethiopians have been deported from Saudi Arabia within the past three months. The majority of them were domestic workers. Koleta Wanjohi reports. A crackdown on illegal immigrants in Saudi Arabia in 2013 led to the death of at least three Ethiopians and the deportation of over 150,000 Ethiopians. Many come back with psychotic-related issues, mainly because of the suffering they are subjected to and refusal by Arab employers to pay them as promised. The government of Ethiopia is now blaming the employment agencies operating in the country for engaging in what they term as illegal human trafficking of Ethiopians to Arab countries. These agencies make the domestic workers sign contracts which are not legally binding. The State Minister for Justice Policy Planning, Solomon Tesfaye, explains that now the government is putting a strong hand against these employment agencies. So our major weakness is low skill somehow illiterate workers working in the Middle East. Obviously, they are abused. They, are, they got payment less than either the Philippines or the Indian workers. So the government stopped sending through agencies house-made workers to the Middle East. First, they should have to finish the groundworks if we return to our position of sending workers to the Middle East. There are over 430 registered employment agencies in Ethiopia. After the recent massive deportation from Saudi Arabia, a special task force has been constituted to push for an amendment of the labor law. The new laws will ensure that employment agencies, if necessary, will only export labor that has basic skills, which can be proven by a certificate from government vocational institutions. The laws will campaign for better pay and working conditions in Arab states. In addition, the law will also strive to create awareness that Ethiopians can make a good life within their country. Ephraim Gizau is the head of labor and social affairs in Addis Ababa city. He explains that now Ethiopia has the potential to give economic empowerment to its citizens. 
they make a conclusion in wrong way. Uh, if uh, I will go abroad, I will, I will, I can a uh, special or a better life. But that is a wrong attitude. Uh, now uh, we believe that there is so many job opportunities in our country. Everybody can uh, make or can change his life if works hard. However, despite Ethiopia's efforts, routes through Kenya, Mozambique, Tanzania and South Africa remain porous for human trafficking of its unskilled labor by brokers. Clayton Joy, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And Musa up next with the headlines. Good morning. The United Nations Security Council is being urged again to refer the Syrian crisis to the International Criminal Court. Lebanon authorities are being urged to do their utmost to put an end to instability and insecurity in the country. And the African Union says talks between the Sudanese government and SPLMN rebels will resume this week. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you. And South Africans, as well as the international community, will be able to follow part of the murder trial proceedings of Paralympian Oscar Pistorius live. Judge Dunstan Mlambo has ruled that the media will be able to broadcast certain parts of the Pistorius murder trial live, but under conditions set out by the court or the presiding judge in the case. Fenwell Schumer reports. It took Judge Dunstan Mlambo an hour to make a ruling on the matter that saw media houses anxious to give their service users first account of the trial proceedings come next week in the North Houting High Court in Pretoria. The ruling followed an application by media houses that sought the court permission to broadcast the proceedings live. This despite attempts by Pistorius lawyers to oppose the application. Mlambo said three cameras may be put in the courtroom in unobstructive places and they must be remotely controlled. No extreme close-up of the legal teams or defendant or any confidential discussions may be recorded and broadcast. Judge Mlambo explains in his ruling. Multi-choice and print media are directed to make the feed from the authorized broadcast referred to above available free of charge to the applicants under case number 51545-13, that is the ATV applicants, and any other broadcaster in clean form that is free of any logos. There is no order as to costs. I hand down the judgment. Pistoria's testimony will also not be broadcast. Mlambo said the strict conditions under which the live broadcast had been allowed were aimed at balancing freedom of expression with Pistoria's right to a fair trial. The interest in the upcoming trial has remained very strong with international media houses sending scores of journalists to cover it. This background is relied on as a basis, as I've mentioned earlier, by the applicants to assert that it is in the public interest that they be granted permission to cover the trial with a view to informing Olen Sandri about it. Media houses have welcomed the North Houting High Court's ruling that they be allowed to broadcast live the trial of Oscar Pistorius. Yusuf Abramji, one of the experts in the media industry, was at the court and had this to say. We believe that the, the judgment is a victory for media freedom 
It's a victory for free speech, and we believe it's a beginning of a new start in our courts of law. The courts of law have become very uh, media-friendly over recent years, and this judgment today is a clear indication that the courts have now gone one step further in allowing access to the media, which in turn allows the public to follow the trial on both radio and television. We will make the feeds available to all the media, whoever requests it, uh, as the judge has ordered. Members of the public also had their say on the matter. I don't follow the news or anything, I don't know. I don't even know who's Oscar Pretoria. You are the wrong person. So whether it's life or not, you don't care? It's not that I don't care. Yeah. I don't know what's happening there. I can't give comment because I don't know. An unidentified friend of the Pistorius family, whose attempts to oppose and seek postponement of the ruling was dismissed by the court, expressed her dissatisfaction. Well, the thing is, is I believe that I need to exercise my rights. And my right is to to exercise Section 34 of the Constitution, which is come to court and be heard. And therefore, um, I will probably appeal what he has said there today to try and just work me out of the way again. And the next thing is, is I still have not been heard by court. She accused the media of having published inaccurate reports about Pistorius' case since it started a year ago. Pistorius, also known as the Blade Runner, shot dead his model girlfriend, Rivastien Camp, on the morning of Valentine's Day last year. He's out on bail of one million rand. Fanuel Schumer, Pretorium. Do you think broadcasting Oscar Pistorius' murder trial live will have any major implication on the outcome of the case? A South African judge has ruled that parts of a trial of Oscar Pistorius, the Paralympic athlete accused of murdering his girlfriend, can be broadcast live on television and radio. For your comments or views, please call us on plus two seven one two three nine five zero five one zero. Email us on info at channelafrica.org. Send us an SMS to plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five or get a hold of us at our Twitter handle, which is at Channel Africa One. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.37 Central African time and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The screening of a documentary capturing the lives and special relationship between former South African President Nelson Mandela and former Cuban President Fidel Castro brings the good old memory of liberation struggle and post-apartheid early years back to sharp focus. The document, produced by world-renowned filmmaker and producer Estela Bravo, also attracted positive comments from the youth in the audience. The viewing session in Pretoria was also attended by the Cuban ambassador to South Africa, Carlos Fernandez de de Cosio, former ambassador to the U.S., a. Barbara Masekela and members of the Nelson Mandela Foundation. Neo Makwiting viewed the film and filed this report. The Mandela Fidel Castro documentary starts <laughs> with the Namibian independence celebration attended by world leaders including Nelson Mandela. Filmmaker Estela Bravo says this is where she first met and developed a long-lasting friendship 
with Madiba. Uh, we were very fortunate because uh, at different occasions we had the opportunity of being with Mandela. The first time was in Namibia about a month after Mandela get, got out of prison. We were with him in Namibia, celebrated the independence of Namibia. And the day after uh, the independence, Mandela met with the Cuban leaders who were there. And he spoke about the Cubans who died in Angola. And he spoke about the importance of Cuba's role in Africa. And so that's, that's the time we met him first, which was in Namibia. Then Mandela came to Cuba, was there at night. He was supposed to visit Cuba, but Manley from Jamaica asked Fidel Castro if Mandela could spend one or two days in Jamaica. So he came very quietly at night, nobody knew. I, I was at the airport, and when the plane landed and the doors opened, Mandela said, at last in Cuba. But there were no reporters there at all at that time. The next morning, Mandela went to Jamaica, where Manley received him. And the, the whole country in Jamaica went all out for Mandela. I guess he's one of the most loved men in this world, all over. It's, it's interesting. Uh. During Mandela's first visit to Cuba, the filmmaker recorded all Maduba speeches, including his private conversation with Comrade Fidel. Today, this is revolutionary Cuba, internationalist Cuba, the country that has done so much for the peoples of Africa. We have long wanted to visit your country and express the many feelings that we have about the Cuban Revolution, the role of Cuba in Africa, Southern Africa, and the world. The Cuban people hold a special place in the hearts of the people of Africa. The Cuban internationalists have made a contribution to African independence, freedom and justice, unparalleled for its principle and selfless character. When you, Comrade Fidel, yesterday said that our cause is your cause, I know that that sentiment came from the bottom of your heart and that that is the feeling of all the people of revolutionary Cuba. Mandela also used one of the Cuban visits to condemn the Western powers' foreign policy towards Cuba. The people of South Africa, general, and the African National Congress in particular, is entitled to have its own friends and allies. That is the affair of the people of South Africa, general, and the African National Congress in particular. Nobody should interfere with that. And in this particular case, Cuba is our friend. And if by visiting this country, I am going to create tensions in Miami. I am very sorry for that. Because I have come here in a spirit of peace. Barbara Masekela, who worked closely with Madiba after his release from jail reflected on the ANC-Cuba relationship. The relationship that Mandela has with Cuba is a wonderful relationship that he has with Fidel. It is not unlike the relationship he had with Walter Sisi. 
all the relationship with Oliver Tango. Before he made any decisions, he would walk down the corridor to sit down with Walter Sisulu and with Oliver Tango and go over with them all the decisions that he wanted to make. Fidel Castro's address to Parliament during his second visit is also documented. The documentary was given a thumb up by the audience consisting amongst others, educators and students. Great documentary uh, reminding us of uh, the, the caliber of leaders that uh, these two countries, uh, leaders who are selfless, who live their lives uh, for the good of, of their people uh, and who are internationalists. It was so emotional. Mandela's left such a wonderful legacy. Just that one thing that um, he said, that love everyone, that is, I think, his legacy. It's just to love everyone and just embrace everyone. I love the friendship between the two men. These two great visionaries. Very inspiring, very informative. Nelson Mandela Foundation CEO Selo Hatang says plans are underway to ensure that the documentary is watched by many people, including the youth. We will be working with the Cuban embassy to ensure that we distribute it as far and wide as possible because they will then be able to enjoy and understand why our struggle was not ours alone. Nelson Mandela has never forgotten the role people from the Caribbean islands played in the liberation struggle of Africa and South Africa in particular. I am Nemo Kuting, Pretoria. Today in 1996, former apartheid-era Minister of Law and Order Adrian Flock applies to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for Amnesty for his role in the bombing of a trade union headquarters in Johannesburg in 1987. Now, it's exactly 8.45 South African time, Central African time rather, and Tabi Soluhoko South Africa's Minister of Finance, uh, Pravin Gordon, is likely to stick closely to his previous spending plans and uh, his budget deficit target when he presents his 2014-2015 budget later today. What's your thinking on this? Well, in a, in a sense, I mean, he knows what he's dealing with. I mean, he's dealing with quite a big, 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 momentous decision-based budget, which... Um, has been plagued by a number of occurrences in the country. Talk of strikes, talk of service delivery protests, talks of this, talks of that. And still, the very same budget itself has to make provisions for a certain number of jobs and benefit Mm. a number of SMMEs. Look, there's just too much into this. Well, Channel Africa listeners... Stay tuned to Channel Africa Current Affairs for more on the story as the day progresses. Tabiso, your update.
Nigeria's incoming central bank governor, Godwin Emefiele, is seen as a steady hand who will maintain tight monetary policy in the face of currency weakness. President Goodluck Jonathan swiftly nominated Emefiele as the next governor last week after suspending Lamido Sanusi. Sanusi has, however, been due to step down in June. Namibia's National Housing Enterprise CEO, Vincent Hailulu, has admitted that the Peristatal awarded a $354 million mass housing contract to a company co-owned by his wife's cousin. Hailulu confirmed this at a press conference on Friday when he announced the names of 25 companies that were awarded tenders to build more than 10,000 homes countrywide as part of the mass housing project. The third annual conference on the Borderless Alliance, uh, dubbed Borderless 2014, is underway in the Sheraton Hotel in Ikecha, Lagos, in Nigeria. The conference, under the theme Enabling Growth, the Borderless 2014, is co-hosted by the Nigerian Export Import Bank and the Nigerian Shippers Council. Both members of the Borderless Alliance, it will engage participants in an informative program of high-profile speakers, facilitate networking and business opportunities for participants, and also provide attractive exhibition and marketing opportunities for sponsors as well as participants. South Africa's Finance Minister, Pravin Gordon, will today present his 2014-15 budget speech. Amina Akram reports. This year's budget will outline government spending plans for the next three to five years, and the budget will be a tough one for the Finance Minister. Some economists believe there will be a few surprises in the budget as the country heads towards elections. Others say government will have to make adjustments as it needs additional revenue to deliver on promises made. Government is also dealing with a widening current account deficit, a decline in revenue. Economists use models to try to make sense of economic trends and shape policies. The former president of the European Central Bank, Jean-Claude Richard, explains. Of course, uh, it is my own experience and I guess the experience of many uh, policymakers, at least in the central banking. First of all, of course, the crisis itself was not uh, anticipated by the, uh, the best models. And I'm not criticizing the models. I'm only mentioning the fact that uh, very rare events like the start of the crisis, both, I would say, the start of the subprime crisis. The U.S. dollar, 1077 South African rands, 878 Botswana pulas, 575 for Zambian kwachas, 0.60 British pound, 0.72 euro, gold, $1341, platinum, $1433 an ounce, Brent crude, 10879 cents a barrel. Economic update. Thank you, Tabi. So, Figula Lingwati up next with the sports update. This hour, starting off with football news, the Confederation of African Football, CAF, has Kenya as the fifth edition of the African Nations Championship in 2018. The executive committee of CAF has selected Kenya as host of the championship following receipt of necessary government guarantees and a complete dossier, including the required infrastructure as well as security guarantees.
It is Libya which won the 2014 edition of Chan held in South Africa earlier in February. Rwanda will host the 2016 edition. And in local football, a head trick by South Africa's premiership side, Bidvest Vets strikers Busiso Vilagazi helped his 10-man side to a 3-2 come from behind victory over Super Sports United in a league encounter at Bidvest Vets Stadium in Bram Park in Johannesburg on Tuesday evening. Busiso Kumaro and Samir Duty scored for Super Sports United. Onismo Basera was sent off for the host, while Mameniang missed a penalty in stoppage time to secure what would have been a valuable point for Supersports United. Vets are now level with the second-place Sundowns on 34 points and will occupy third position because of the Brazilians that Sundowns superior goal difference. Meanwhile, Mamelodi Sundowns' title challenge was dealt a blow when they went down 1-0 to Orlando Pirates in their APSA Premiership encounter at Loftus Stadium in Pretoria. Sundowns went into the clash looking for their fourth league win on a trot, but a first-half goal from Ketogwa Akemasugu saw the game going in favor of Pirates. Sundowns remain in second place with 34 points, nine points behind leaders Kaiser Chiefs, while Pirates are up to sixth place with 27 points. On to boxing news, South African boxer Heki Butler has come a long way. He's a boxer and his improvement can be attributed to various things. These are the views of his trainer, Colin Nathan, ahead of Butler's double title defense against Colombia's Carl Luis Diaz. The two will meet for Butler's IBO and WBA World Strawweight titles at Emperor's Palace in Kempton Park, east of Johannesburg, on Saturday evening. The main supporting bout will see Rhino Liebenberg take on Uganda's Joey Vegas for the vacant WBC International Lightweight Bat Belt, and Nathan has been with Butler from day one and continues to sing his praises. Well, I think his transformation and transition as a fighter when he came to me seven years ago has been nothing short of amazing. You know, defensively he was flawed. He, he, he took a lot of headshots. And now, you know, specifically against Kosanani Joy last year when no one gave us a chance, he didn't take a lot of headshots at all. Um, his defense has improved. His offense has improved. You know, Heck, he's one of those fighters. He'll never be a one-punch knockout artist, but he's sitting more on his punches. Um, his strength and cause improved so much over the last six months, six, six to 12 months. So I'm confident that, that he's improved so much to the point where we can actually justify in calling him the best fi- fighter in that division. In golf news, South African golfer Darren Fichat says it means a lot to be acknowledged by your peers after scooping the Players' Player Awards in Pretoria. A 38-year-old was narrowly beaten in the Sunshine Tour Order of Merit last year by Davy van der Waal, en route to his childhood dream of playing in the NetBank Golf Challenge. With golf now set to take part in the 2016 Rio de Janeiro, Fichat says he's more inspired. Obviously a great honour to uh, be players, player of the year award that your competitors, you know, recognise your achievements within the year and, uh, you know, it's, uh, you yeah, know, guys you're trying to beat week in, week out, they, they look at you and, uh, you know, acknowledge your achievements in the year. So that's a true, true honour. Finally, with tennis news, Novak Djokovic opened the defence of his Dubai Championship title with a straight-set victory over Denis Istomin while second-seeded Juan Martin Del Potro had to retire from his first-round match. Top-seeded Djokovic, who is making only his second appearance this year after reaching the quarterfinals of the Australian Open, was a 6-3, 6-3 winner over 54th-ranked Istamin of Uzbekistan. Del Potro was not so fortunate, being forced to retire against Somdev Devraman of India after losing the first set tie-breaker 7-6-3. And, and that's your spot news this hour. Africa, rise and shine.
Afrika Zora Afrika Amka na Unai Recapping our top stories on Africa Brass and Shine at this hour thousands of civilians in the Central African Republic face imminent danger of being attacked and fighting leaves Malakal town deserted in South Sudan. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Adrian Kenny and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za Follow us on Twitter at Channel Africa 1 or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is George Piri with Mayo Mayo. Nalila, my way. Nalila, my way. Gulila, watch it.